um, African-Americans were 3.3 times more likely to have treatment mm. um, uh, discontinued. That's powerful. We have to ask yeah. ourselves what's going on here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast. My name is Naftali Serrano. I'm the Executive Director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, and we are excited to have our next podcast. These podcasts get more and more fun for us. We hope that they are more and more fun for you to listen to. Uh, we have our podcast team here complete this month, which is awesome. So I'll let each of them introduce themselves real quick just to remind you who they are and where they're talking to you from. We are all over the country. Grace, why don't you get us started? Hi, I'm Grace Wilson. I'm the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Great. So we have our Midwest and sort of Southwest. I don't know where to put Oklahoma exactly. We're kind of in the middle. I don't know. Yeah. They they call it's... themselves South, but people that are actually from the South would take offense to that. So I try yeah. to be careful. I'm originally from Texas, which as we all know is its own region. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> it's Oklahoma is somewhere near Texas. How about we say that? Yes. Yeah. And then in Texas, we have Deepu. Deepu, introduce yourself. Good morning. Uh, this is Deepu George from the Rio Grande Valley, and we are geographically probably the most southern. We are at the tip of Texas, which is sort of like the bottom of the United States. So we're holding the rest of the country up from down here. And I am the guy who has food references all the time and analogies and metaphors for our wonderful all listeners time. all the time. All the time. Yeah, I'm just waiting for today's uh, <laughs> scrumptious um, metaphor. That this will pop out of your mind. This time put a recipe in the show notes. So you can yes. something and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. that. Slightly biased vegan recipes, but all right, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> and we do have East Coast representation. Amber, let people know where you are. Hi, I am Amber Gordon, and I am joining from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am kind of the resident student on the podcast, although I recently uh, graduated, so I'm kind of moving up into the ranks of the professional world. But for this particular show, I did uh, get tasked with some research, so I got to use my skills that way. <laughs> yes, and she asked for a grade beforehand, which tells you that she's still in <laughs> student mindset. <laughs> so. All right. And then last but not least, on the left coast, we've got our good friend, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, let people know who you are. Um, can you hold on a sec while I stash my surfboard for a second? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Ring here in Los Angeles. So happy to be with all of you, health psychologist and a consultant with Health Management Associates. Um, I'm really happy to be with all of you, especially um, sad to have missed your last podcast, the Warm Handoff podcast was extraordinary and i just commend you i don't know if there are awards for podcasts but um i would nominate that it, you spoke each of you with incredible smarts and heart and um makes me exact so excited for uh, more of that uh today yes yes absolutely thanks for those kind words jeffrey but we did miss you and we're glad to have you back uh, on our podcast 
and you know you get this kind of representation at CFHA, which is really awesome uh, to have the geographic representation. But it's also cool to have the interdisciplinary representation as well. We've got LMFTs on this podcast. We've got psychologists on this podcast. Um, we have folks with all sorts of different training backgrounds. Um, and different levels of training as well. Folks like Amber, who are just starting out, and folks like Jeffrey and myself, who are, you know, old fogies. So, you know, uh, I, I, I'm just appreciating being part of this podcast team today. I hope you do as well as listeners. So we're going to jump into our uh, podcast today. We've got a packed podcast and, and a really, really broad topic that we're going to do our best to sort of narrow down to be as helpful as possible to those of you out there who are thinking about these issues clinically, who are struggling with these issues in your integrated care teams. Uh, and it's the issue of, of opioid addiction, um, particularly in primary care settings where so much of this is presenting and, and where treatment is being attempted to be provided in many instances. So uh, before that, uh, as usual, a couple of quick announcements. Um, Obviously, we've got our conference coming up in October, October 18th in Rochester, New York. I'm not going to belabor that. You've heard that before from me, but just check integratedcareconference.com for all the information. We will be there. So if you are a podcast junkie who just wants to come meet us, we're going to be recording live at the conference. And then, of course, you can listen to our podcast going to integratedcarenews.com and scrolling down to our podcast section or on SoundCloud or iTunes. We certainly appreciate any feedback. Um, So you can like us on the podcast. You can subscribe to us. You can also provide feedback via email at info at cfha.net. We love to hear from our listeners. And by the way, one of the cool things about it is uh, as we check our stats on the podcast uh, listenership, we've got like an international kind of thing we've got we had some listens in from australia um and some some other foreign countries as well so shout out to anybody who's listening in australia i don't know who you are but i'd love to hear from you and see if what we're talking about is relevant in the australian context as well so uh, hello from the u.s all right that's all for the announcements let's jump in to our news and notes All right, so this week we've got some really good news and notes. Um, let's start with uh, sort of a policy focus with Deepu. Deepu, you've got some uh, sort of uh, uh, policy-related issues related to opioid. Yes, I just wanted to give our listeners a resource to sort of be aware of and keep track of. I think the more informed the CFHA and integrated community is about what's moving in the national scene, the better informed we can be about our local context and what is happening to the work that we do. So two things that I would like everyone to go to their Google browser. If you're driving, do not do this right now. Do this later. But it is HR 5545, which is Comprehensive Addiction Resources Emergency Act of 2018. It was introduced by Representative uh, Elijah Cummings and earlier this year in April, and it is still moving along. So that's one thing to look out for. And then the other one is S.2680, which is the Opioid Crisis Response Act of 2018, uh, introduced in uh, April as well by Senator Lamar Alexander. So um, keep 
uh, that in your ticker. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of these bills going through Congress, and they those bills can really have a big impact on both funding, access to treatments, and even just things that make integrated care look, work better, like allowing LMFTs to bill Medicare, things like that. So thanks, Steve, right. for that reminder. Yeah, great news and note. All right, Grace, you've got a New York Times editorial to talk to us about. Yeah, so this past Tuesday, uh, there was an editorial published by Rod Rosenstein, our current deputy attorney general, and it was an op-ed that he wrote in response to an initiative that's happening at at least 13 different cities around the country to establish what's called safe injection sites. Um, the proponents of this kind of site, which there's over a hundred of them in the world, there's not any in the States right now, but they exist in Canada and Europe is that it provides a place where people can bring their own illegal drugs, use them under the supervision of either a peer or medical personnel who are, you know, prepared with like, you know, the antidotes or Narcon or whatever, so they can respond in the case of an overdose. So the idea behind these is that people are going to use these drugs. We want to, you know, the proponents would say we want them to use them in a space where they're supervised, where they're protected. Um, but the attorney general's op-ed spoke for the opposition side, which also definitely has a strong voice saying, you know, this is condoning, it's facilitating and enabling addiction. And so there's uh, just a lot of controversy about this right now, but it goes to something that um, I talked about with our um, special segment guest yesterday. I can't remember if it made it into the segment or if it was in the conversation that we had outside of it about a movement towards harm reduction and thinking about, um, you know, addiction exists. So how can we, you know, are there ways that we can make it safer? So there's some estimates. Um, one of the NPR interviews that I'll link to that these injection sites would save lives of overdoses. And um, currently we have over 200 people per day in the United States who are overdosing on drugs, not just opioids, but other kinds of um, illegal drugs. And so it's just, it's something I think we're going to be hearing more about. And it's something I didn't know a lot about. And so I think just being aware of both of these sides of the issue, which I will post the NPR links um, to the interviews, and, and, as well as the link to the op-ed. So people can just be informed about both sides and kind of form your own opinions about this. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a... It's a difficult issue, and one of the ties into our conversation later about this topic is is just the conversation of what to think about substance abuse treatment and substance abuse as a category. Um, so harm reduction is one of those big sort of concepts that's hard for some folks to get their minds around, um, in addition to the whole idea of treating substance abuse as a chronic disease or a chronic condition. So I think those are going to be two themes for our podcast today for sure. But... And before I jump into that conversation, uh, Jeffrey, you do a great job of grounding us in issues of social justice, social justice and racial discrimination and health disparities. And you took that angle with our news and notes. So tell us a little bit about what you uh, kind of investigated around that. Um, yes, uh, I, I was really struck by some research from um, Gaither and colleagues. Um, the article is entitled Racial Disparities in the Discontinuation of long-term opioid therapy. Uh, and, and this was looking at um, illicit drug use in black and white patients. Interesting idea, right? 
discontinuation of therapy, who begins getting some treatment, and then um, it seems to sort of fall away or fall apart. Well, in the research, they, they looked at 15,000 patients uh, who were receiving long-term opioid therapies. And of those, um, they wanted to see how many were getting um, you know, uh, urine drug screens within the first six months. And they only found 20%. So, so we already see a problem here. I mean, the good news is there's a lot of people that are getting treatment, but then we see the first problem that only 20% of these 1,500 patients actually had a follow-up urine drug screen in the six months um, in which they had initiated therapy. And 25% um, uh, uh, of the African-American patients had received the urine drug screen and about 15% of the white patients. So this is the first thing to note. We have opportunity to improve um, care and, uh, and, and surveillance. Um, for those patients who were showed positive on the urine drug screen for cannabis, African-American patients were two times more likely to have their treatment discontinued. So these are patients that were tested and were positive, and yet African-American patients were two times more likely to have the treatment discontinued. Uh, positive for cocaine, those patients, um, African-Americans were 3.3 times more likely to have treatment mm. um, uh, discontinued. That's powerful. We have to ask yeah. ourselves what's going on here. We have to ask ourselves about what gets in the way. What are our biases and blind spots and denials and training gaps. Um, so I, I just wanted to really give a, a shout out to Gaither and their extraordinary work and what it says to us in terms of what, what we need, ways we need to grow in the treatment communities. Absolutely. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. Yeah. And it, it's interesting how that mirrors the data that we have around what happens at traffic stops. Um, and other related data around school and schools and uh, student expulsion. Um, yeah, there's all these ways in which uh, institutional and individual bias comes into play with it. And it's interesting that, you know, I think it's a great call to say, hey, we as healthcare providers are no different than these other sort of social uh, instances where bias has an impact. Yeah, really powerful stuff. All right, uh, our final news and note here for today before we go to Amber and some great statistics she has for us is um, we had a, a, a discussion uh, yesterday, actually yesterday being the day before we recorded this podcast, uh, among some CFHA members across the country uh, just discussing the law that governs the provision of substance abuse treatment and the um, record-keeping related to substance abuse treatment in substance abuse centers. It's called 42 CFR Part 2, and it's caused a little bit of the revision of that law has caused some concern among folks in integrated care because what we want ideally in integrated care is the ability to transfer information seamlessly between team members so that we can take care of patients effectively while still protecting their privacy and confidentiality. So the law was intended to actually help that situation. It introduced a whole lot more gray area and, uh, and as such caused some consternation this year. However, it does seem as if there have been some, uh, um, some consensus that has emerged from that. And if you'd like to look at that information, just go to our website, cfha.net, and in our Twitter box, in our Twitter feed, 
scroll through our Twitter feed. I put some links there to some resources, presentations, et cetera, that describe exactly how to deal with this law um, and uh, all the sort of uh, release of information stuff that you need to know around it. So I won't belabor that point, but that's a resource that you can look into that will really help free you to continue to provide good integrated care in primary care settings. Um, and uh, and yet, at the same time, understand if 42 CFR Part 2 applies to you in primary care. In most cases, it should not. If you're not holding yourself out as a substance abuse treatment center uh, specifically. Um, uh, so check that out. The links are there in the Twitter box on CFHA.net. All right. That's my news and notes. We've got too much of a great podcast here to uh, belabor our news and notes. Um but we're going to pick up on a lot of these themes that we've already talked about to get us sort of going with a little bit of context. Uh, Amber has been tasked with giving us a sense of the scope uh, and breadth statistically of this issue. So Amber, tell us a little bit about what you discovered as you researched a little bit on the breadth of the opioid issue in the U S. So I went, and uh, my first place that I checked was uh, the National Survey on Drug Use and then the Centers for Disease Control. And I really tried to keep my statistics pretty zeroed in on things that were directly related to, um, you know, the opioid crisis. Uh, so just some general things coming uh, right from the CDC and the National Survey. Uh, about 115 people die every day in the U.S. from prescription painkiller overdose. Uh, the average age for a first-time prescription painkiller user is actually only 21.2 years old. 77% of opioid use disorder patients are actually only between the ages of 21 and 35, and 70% of uh, those patients are actually male. Um, just to follow it up and round it out, 4.3 million Americans are using opioids for non-medical purposes. And then over the past 20 years, the use and abuse of prescription opioids has greatly increased in the U.S. There was actually um, a study that I looked at. It was through uh, pain and policy study groups. It was done in 2011. Uh, but what they found was in 1996, prescribers wrote prescriptions uh, for enough opioids for every man, woman, and child to have the equivalent of 96 milligrams of morphine per person per year. Up in 2015, it had to increase um, to 640 milligrams per person per year. Um, and uh, just to give you guys a final stat, 2.1 million Americans have opioid use disorder, and 11 million have uh, abused opioids at some point in their lifetime. So it's a lot going on there. Yes. Yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah. And it also underscores the complexity of the issue, right, that we're going to be addressing here. There's And there's different layers. We're going to do our best to focus our conversation as best as possible. But I'll just at least give the broad outline of those layers. There's a layer related to the pres uh, prescription-based uh, uh, abuse, so abuse that's based on folks who maybe start out with a, a pain condition, um, are given opioids, get hooked on those opioids, and then begin abusing those. And then, and then they may move on potentially to uh, illegal street drugs like heroin, for example. Um, and then there's uh, just folks who abuse uh, street drugs. And there's the, all the social and other issues related to um, the abuse of, of street drugs, et cetera. And so there's, there's sort of a healthcare-related component to it with regard to prescribing and prescribing patterns. 
um, that if you haven't heard about to this point, I don't know where you've been because <laughs> it's been all over the news. And then there's also this issue of just um, uh, broader uh, substance abuse in general. So um, all of these issues really make present a unique challenge to a location like primary care and are really a great opportunity and frankly, a great reason for integrated care. Um, as I've said before, I think in, in this podcast, uh, I would not want to as an individual primary care provider, I would not feel comfortable treating opioid addiction by myself. I, I would need a team. And I would say the same thing actually is true if I'm a substance abuse provider. I wouldn't want to treat a patient individually either from that standpoint. I would need a team around me. And uh, the medical side of that team is hugely important for the treatment of this condition. So uh, this is why, we, we're, why we're addressing this issue today. Now, Grace, you did an interview with um, someone who's an expert in this area, a lot of on-the-ground experience. Um, can you set us up for that interview? And also, uh, just to talk a little bit about your impressions about it, and obviously the rest of the team can do so as well. Sure. So I interviewed a friend of mine. Her name is Franny Pryor. She's a licensed clinical social worker and also a licensed alcohol and drug counselor in Oklahoma. And Franny has recently worked as the expert project director for about four years for FQHC here in Oklahoma City. Um, and she'll introduce herself further, but she's also become involved in some really interesting projects at the state level in Oklahoma, um, even kind of expanding our idea, idea of collaboration and just what you're talking about, treating addiction from the context of a team. So Franny and I sat down together yesterday. We talked for close to two hours, but I recorded about 15 minutes of it to share with our listeners. Uh, and she just has so much good insight into this project at, or, or this problem at a broad scope, <laughs> this problem at a broad scope, but also that intimate experience of a clinician on the ground, working with these patients, treating this, you know, really big issue. So I, I think maybe we'll listen to my my interview with Franny and then talk a little bit about it as a team about our impressions of that. Sounds good. All right. Let's cut to the interview with uh, Franny Pryor. Hello. Welcome. Why don't you start by introducing yourself a little bit? My name is Franny Pryor. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and licensed alcohol and drug counselor. Most recently, I worked as the ESPERT Screening Brief Intervention and Referral to Treatment Project Director for Community Health Centers of Oklahoma, which is an FQHC here in Oklahoma City, Central Oklahoma area. And I was the first integrated behavioral health consultant in that system before uh, working with the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services to obtain a SAMHSA grant for ESPERT. And now I've moved into a role as a consultant in private practice and also provide clinical services, licensure supervision, and do some teaching at the College of Dentistry. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited you got to join me. Franny and I have known each other for a couple years now and have worked on some really interesting projects of different people doing integrated care in Oklahoma City. So, um, you know, I already told you that we we're talking mostly about addiction and specifically the opioid crisis um, this month. And I know that you have a lot of experience with working with this clinical population. And so I wondered if you could start by just giving a brief overview of some of the modalities that you're familiar with, some of the ways of working with patients who fall under this umbrella. Well, 
there's, you know, a pretty large menu of options. And I would say, um, you know, a lot of it also depends on any co-occurring chronic conditions, mental health issues, things of that nature. But in general, I'm, you know, a big fan of ESPERT, the Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment model. And in the program that I implemented, we also did provide brief treatment because we used licensed clinicians to, um, you know, finish the warm handoff as BHCs in our clinics. And if a patient was indicated for brief treatment, then, you know, we'd provide that. And so the brief intervention model is, you know, really kind of the integrated care, a lot of motivational interviewing, motivational enhancement, behavior activation, solution focused, brief treatment, um, a little bit more moving into cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm also a big fan of DBT, um, especially working with populations that can use grounding grounding skills and um, some impulse control related techniques. Um, ACT, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, that's something that we've started using with the systems that I've been working with recently. Um, so I think that pretty much well covers a lot of the modalities, but also obviously there's medication assisted treatment as well. Um, I've worked in residential treatment, um, so I think that especially when we get to that RT, the referral to treatment component of SBIRT, um, being aware of those resources as they exist in your community and assessing someone's you know appropriateness for residential treatment if they have access to those resources is important. And I'm really excited about um, the increasing awareness of and you know an accessibility of MAT and, you know, the various options that exist under that menu. So one of the things that I know that you've done just from knowing you and your projects is really taking a lot of interdisciplinary approaches to working with this patient population. I mean, you mentioned ESPERT, and I know you were in an FQHC or embedded with a medical clinic, but there's some other projects you've worked on too, right, that are pretty kind of innovative, different interdisciplinary approaches to treating what's true. A pretty tricky population to work with sometimes. Yeah, so as I know you know, I mean, being in Oklahoma, you wouldn't really think, I talk about this a lot, you wouldn't really think that Oklahoma is doing some pretty innovative things with integrated care, but I think um, that's sort of come out of necessity of being in a state that, you know, didn't expand Medicaid, doesn't have a lot of resources. So for instance, we have a center for social work and health care, um, you know, and we've got the bi-monthly behavioral health practitioners and primary care work group. We also have through the University of Oklahoma's Health Sciences Center, a interdisciplinary professional education program called Project EPIC, which is empowering patients through interdisciplinary collaboration. So um, that's really cool. I think is, you know, we're really starting to train students across all of the different healthcare professions to understand how to collaborate. And part of that project as well is something called All Professions Day, where students, you know, and these are students from not just medical and, you know, the behavioral health sciences, but OT, PT, audiology, speech pathology, nutrition, nursing, you know, the whole, every type of provider um, looking at all of the psychosocial components of healthcare. And so that's been something that's been great to be a part of. And that's how I started teaching for the College of Dentistry, which I teach third year dental students on substance abuse and dependence and uh, ESPER, those types of issues. 
Also, with the Espert Project, we did some really cool things. I got to work with the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and we piloted a program where the OBN would run the PMP, the Prescription Monitoring Program, and if an individual, you know, met a certain potentially concerning criteria in regards to the number of pharmacies and the number of providers that they were receiving controlled substances prescriptions from, then they would reach out to that patient and offer that patient to meet with me and go through a screening and, you know, the whole expert process. And I was really encouraged by that. I've worked in prison diversion programs as well. And so I've seen from the criminal justice side, a lot of, you know, judges who, and and like probation officers who seem to understand addiction and substance abuse, but hearing the law enforcement from, you know, the narcotics bureau really understand the, and have empathy and compassion was very, um, it just, it made me really hopeful. And it, it really made me think about how integrated care goes beyond just interdisciplinary collaboration with medical professionals. And it really does require a, like a full community wide, any, any professional who is at all engaging potentially with people who could have these issues, which, you know, that's a pretty wide group of people needs to be a part of this conversation and needs to be educated on the issues associated with substance use, abuse, and dependence. And so the Narcotics Bureau definitely doing some pretty innovative things here. We've got a lot of different specialty treatment and um, treatment courts, those type of things happening in Oklahoma as well. I love that. And I think one of the reasons why, besides just knowing all the awesome work that you've done, why it was important to me to have you on our podcast today was because I think we so far haven't highlighted a lot of social worker voices. And that's one really powerful strength, I think, that your discipline brings, that connection with the community and awareness of, you know, integration can happen on all these different levels and taking that kind of ecological perspective of how we can, you know, go closer to the patient, but also expand out into the community. I think particular with, you know, when we face a difficult patient population and working with people with addiction, it's hard. And some of the characteristics and behaviors that are associated with addiction they, you know, as a provider, it can be frustrating. And we know that a lot of times it takes a lot of attempts for someone to heal from addiction and it's an ongoing thing for the rest of their life. So when we face those difficult problems, a team, I feel like makes just such a huge difference. So I wonder if you could comment a little bit on kind of the power of a team with working with addiction and some of the ways that that's beneficial to patients and providers. Sure. So I remember when I first started working in primary care in an integrated role, um, one of the providers would just call me when they wanted me to make a referral for, you know, potential child abuse or neglect. And I really had to educate them about, um, you know, our licensure process and that, you know, we are qualified to diagnose. And I think um, kind of a, a, a really great moment for me was when I 
I was able to get provider champions. And one of my provider champions and I actually have done presentations around Oklahoma on the natural partnership between primary care providers and social workers. And I think that that really is a a natural fit because as social workers, we're also generalists and we're trained from a systems theory perspective. Um, So just, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, integrated care makes sense to us. I never expected to be working in primary care or integrated care. And when I first started doing that, I was sort of like, you know, can I, I don't know what an A1C is. Can I really handle working in this setting? But once I started realizing that it really just was a, a biopsychosocial model of treating a whole person and, and also from an evidence-based standpoint that People, we can't just expect, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but we can't just expect patients to just like organically call a therapist and say that they need services for a variety of different reasons. So realizing the magic of the warm handoff, right? And when a provider realized that when they had a patient crying in their office, they could call me, that's when I started getting, you know, a lot of referrals. And I I think something that I, I... I talk about a lot is that I think, you know, primary care providers in particular, they're so strapped for time and have so many things that they have to attend to in a very short encounter. So sometimes, especially I see with trying to implement SBIRT, it's sort of like, okay, but if I ask these questions and I do a robust screening, then I have to do something with that information and I don't really have time to do that. And it's not because providers don't want to know, but it's, they don't know what to do so having a bhc as a part of their team to to help do that heavy lifting it's just so it's so important and it really does it it allows all the types of providers including the pcp to really experience the reason why they went into medicine and to be able to sit with their patient and say okay i see you and i see that you're experiencing this for whatever reason, and I have somebody right here. I'm not just giving you a phone number. I'm not just putting a referral in the system. I have someone right here who I can vouch for. I trust them, and I want them to help, you know, help you, and I think it's it's empowering for both the patients and the providers, but there has to be that education between the different disciplines about, you know, why we don't have to be siloed and we don't have to do it alone. I mean, I think even just working in private practice, mental health professionals, they're not necessarily trained to think about getting a release for a patient's PCP. I know that's something you and I have talked about before, um, but we can't exist in in silos anymore. And, And so I know for me personally, from a clinical and professional standpoint, it felt much more rewarding to be a part of a care team. Uh, and I'd done interdisciplinary work before, but with law enforcement or social service professionals, things of that nature, but being part of a, a, an interdis- interdisciplinary care team from a medical and a healthcare standpoint and providing brief interventions and those types of solutions, the payoff as a clinician was just, I mean, it was just so much greater because you're able to really see people and providers be empowered so quickly and, you know, share some of that heavy lifting. 
I think that's for me been a big piece of it. It's just you're not alone in treating some of these most difficult patients. I want to kind of wrap up. I know this was so fast, but I wonder what advice you might give to a clinician or a team who says, you know, we're in primary care, we're treating patients, we know there are people with addiction problems but we don't really have a good systematic approach to dealing with it. We don't really know where to start. What would be some first lines of advice that you would give to them? So this is such a big issue to tackle and I know we don't have a lot of time, but I think first and foremost, empathy is key from all levels of this, both from a provider patient perspective and from a provider to provider and a provider to their system perspective. And so just acknowledging that this is a difficult situation to tackle and there aren't necessarily a lot of easy answers um, and quick solutions, but you know, as a system, whether or not you have a formalized response to substance abuse and, and dependence, you're, you're still responding to that issue. Whether it's choosing to just not prescribe potentially addictive substances, period, as a, you know, as a practice decision or, you know, whatever else it may be, like you still have patients who are going to be struggling with these issues. So the first question I think has to be, what support do you need to just be able to have those conversations, not just with the patients, but with your colleagues and with your system administrators as well. And from there, I'd say making yourself familiar with the resources available to your community and the population you're working with, which, you know, great places to start are with your state's Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, um, joining any other type of networking groups, but having some people to call or, you know, having um, just some ability to say, I may not have the answer, but I know who can help me find the answer to help you feel more supported. But definitely, you know, ultimately working in a system that's moving towards integrated care and where you have a BHC or if you're working as a BHC, you have support from your administration or you at least have one physician champion or provider champion on staff, those are going to be the best ways. But self-care is really all just comes down to self-care and, and allowing yourself to experience the challenges and the discomfort of working with that population and not expecting yourself to have all of the answers and also not expecting your patients to um, just either like demand a prescription from you or not see you at all. Yeah. Well, I think that that is all such awesome advice and so useful for those of us who are just on the ground working with these patients. Because like you said, it's there and it's an incredibly prevalent problem. And whether you have a systematic response or not, you're dealing with it in some ways. So. And I do have just one more quick thing to add mm -hmm. too that I, I'd say from my own experience, I think um, clinicians in particular really need to start familiarizing ourselves more with grant opportunities because there are a lot of grant opportunities available particularly for integrated care as there becomes more public conversation about the opioid crisis in particular and so um, you can't just expect your administrators to be you know paying attention to those particular opportunities so even just going to grants.gov and you know signing up for the emails that can be another really great way to further along 
you know, resources for integrative care in your systems. Thank you for sharing that. We'll link that in the show notes and we'll also link some contact information for Franny if anyone has any follow-up questions or wants to get in touch with her. So thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. So much for having me. Okay, so that was the interview that I did with Franny. Uh, It's fresh on my mind because I did it yesterday, and I know that our team was able to listen to it in advance too. So I just wanted to maybe start by opening it up and say what were some of the things that stood out to you guys or, you know, where did it lead you down listening to this interview? I think for me it really highlighted the importance of primary care and the ability to – sort of use integrated care to highlight how we can make an impact because primary care has multiple doors and no no door is the wrong door uh, mm-hmm. where the patient can come in and can get the treatment that they need. So I think it really covers the issue of access. And I know in one of the conversations that we had, one of the things that we also talked about was, which I heard her talk about, is getting providers comfortable and inviting them into the space for treatment for something uh, that, unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma and misnomers and misconceptions, and even seeing these issues as a characterological issue rather than something that people are struggling with. Well, I'd like to linger on that point, Deepu. I mean, can we really have a maybe frank conversation for a couple of minutes about what is it in the clinician, him or herself, that gets in the way. We are not doing a good job. We're not doing a good job of welcoming, inviting, assessing, treating, following, healing. I had some thoughts about that, but but do the rest of you have some thoughts about what is, what's the wall? What's the block? I think sometimes, I mean, in my experience, myself and the physicians that I work with, we wanna treat problems that are gonna get better. And we want to treat people and to know that we did something and it helped and everybody's happy and healthy at the end of the day. And that's not the course for addiction for most people. It's not just that you have an incident of treatment and then, oh, it's all better. It's never something that you think about again. And it's, it can be, you know, I've been doing a lot of research and talking about burnout and working with those kinds of complicated problems like addiction, like anything that doesn't have a clear etiology or a clear answer, it ends up kind of demoralizing for the provider who's unable to help. And it comes into constant contact with the suffering and then just feels helpless. And I think the what happens a lot of times, unfortunately, is then we just stop asking or we stop looking for it because of our own stuff and not being able to manage it ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Grace. Um, I think that that uh, it's a little bit of learned helplessness, right? It's you know right. pressing the bar and not getting any results out, and then you feel like you just want to quit. Which is why I think one of the clinical nuggets for today is really just for all those clinicians out there who who are sincerely want to do better, but have these sort of internal or sometimes external barriers, is just to really begin to change mindset around this, and that's where adopting a chronic condition mindset is truly important. We don't, I've seen some providers get frustrated with managing their their poorly managed diabetics in similar ways, but it's sort of to an magnified to an nth degree with substance abuse, I think, because of the stigma issues. 
But if we adopt that approach, that this is a lifelong condition, this is something that um, is going to wax and wane as far as uh, progress and setbacks, um, and that my job is not to fix, but rather to be a facilitator of health and a uh, facilitator of safety um, and a facilitator of progress on this journey that this patient is on, then we can mitigate against some of that learned helplessness uh, that comes from really just having inappropriate expectations with regard to what it means to provide substance abuse. The other, the other thing that I want to say to Jeffrey's point is I think one of the things that gets in our way is the mindset that we do not have within us the capacity to be helpful to the person. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of clinicians then engage in a lot of magical thinking. Well, if I just refer this person to the right person who does have that magic um, recipe to help this person with their addiction, then things will be better. And it's really just a passing the buck philosophy that's really magical thinking because what what um, a, a person is going to get at a formal substance abuse treatment center is not usually substantially different than what they're going to get with a very well-qualified uh, uh, person who um, has the clinical skills and basic know-how of what it takes to engage chronic disease management, frankly. And until we change that mindset, we're going to keep passing these patients along and in the process, I think, to your point, Jeffrey, I think what we end up doing is shunning this population. We, we want to segment them out to a different place where we don't see them and we don't have to touch them. And I think we've got to be willing to touch these folks in just the same way we touch all of our other patients. But, but, but we can go further with that. Why would we want to push them away? What is it about what they're presenting or bringing that is so un? tenable, untouchable. And, and I, I would say, especially as you share the data with us, um, it's about the enormity of the tragedy. It's the enormity of the trauma. Uh, Franny Pryor says, you know, when a patient comes and sees a physician and starts to cry, you know, I can come in and help. But, but what happens when the physician sees a patient and the physician starts to weep? With with helplessness and overwhelm, and 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 or what if ha what happens if if the patient comes in and tells a story of their trauma, and their addictions that touches a place in 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 us, we are not free. We live in a society littered with addictions to, you know, our cell phones and gaming and gambling and sexual overdoing and food and legal things like marijuana and alcohol and, 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 and so forth, smoking. So, so you know, what, what about that part, right? How, how, do, we, how do we open heart and self-reflection and relationship-centered care? Yeah. So I think, I think that's where uh, the integrated care team comes in because I think sometimes it's so overwhelming, the trauma, the, the vicarious trauma, is so overwhelming that we begin to engage in precisely the things we're trying to help the addict uh, turn away from, which is avoidance, right? We begin to engage right. in avoidance of pain and thus and professionally begin to push patients away, which, which goes to, I think, that statistic you brought up, Jeffrey, before about um, how, we, how um, 
African Americans in particular are marginalized, right? It's almost like the extent of the pain is so much, we're just, you know, it's too messy, too messy. And on some level, I think as a clinician, it's important to uh, be mindful of that and and know that you have a lot to contain when you're working with folks with substance abuse. But again, to me, that's the argument for integrated care because then it's not just right. me containing this. It's, it's us. It's a whole team. It's yeah. a community, really, right? The community of the clinic even that um, gets to know this person, begins to value this person, and together can contain um, the, as you put it, the tragedy of 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 what the addiction wreaks in a person's life. Yeah. I think as you guys as we stay on this, I think a couple of things come up for me in thinking about this. So uh there's a um a Jesuit priest out in Los Angeles who works a lot with uh, uh the gangs uh, in Los Angeles area. He has the homeboy industries and he always quotes this thing of when we're struggling, change the metaphor, right? Change the metaphor of how we are looking at things. So we are surrounded by uh, issues of addiction and pleasure seeking and other things. But I think we, we tend not to fully recognize the water that we swim in. Uh, one of our psychiatrists who's uh, down here, Dr. Frank Fernandez, and he would talk about primary care physicians and primary care systems that would turn away a patient if they came to an appointment intoxicated or uh, at screens positive for uh, any of the substances that they're in treatment for. And he would sort of turn around and say, you know, if you had a diabetic patient who came back with really uncontrolled blood sugars, are you going to turn them away? Uh, the expectation of self-regulation and habit formation and habit change that we have of the diabetic patient to manage their diabetes is the same processes that we hope somebody a, with a substance use and abuse experience would go through but our response is fundamentally different when they show up to the clinic versus somebody who has another chronic disease uh, show up to the clinic. And I think the community that holds the pain uh, is the community that needs to sort of think about this in a more self-reflective way. And I think one of the most encouraging articles that I've read uh, in the past that sort of mimics uh, all of the things that we were talking about is uh, by Atul Gawande. He has an article called The Heroism of Incremental Care. Uh, and it's a great article that just makes a great point for good, slow work of primary care that really meets patients where they are. Um, I had the privilege of being with Cherokee Health Systems last week, and they have an addiction clinic. And they talked about a few patient stories. And, you know, it's not your... Uh, miracle one-shot story. It takes months and years of continuous access and work with BHCs, social workers, peer support groups, physicians that actually get them to the places where they can, where they can be. And what I noticed was the struggle of the team as well, right? The patient is struggling and unclear and suffering which is immediately reflected in how we organize ourselves and how we talk about that patient. And when our language is matching the slow work of what we need to do, then I think we do a better job of containing and holding what the patients are bringing in. And I would add also just kind of, I think exposing ourselves to 
you know, these patients and their stories. I know for me, like as I was going through my program, um, one of the things that we were invited to do was to go attend open AA and NA meetings. And that was super helpful for me. Um, And, you know, when I was asked to introduce myself, I just said, hey, like I'm, you know, a therapy student. I'm just here to kind of you know, get to know you guys and learn and see what this is all about. And they were all super happy that, you know, somebody from the mental health care system was there to try to get to know them on a personal level. Um, I think, you know, overall, like I attended several different um, like 12 step meetings. And for me, I, I don't necessarily feel the way that I felt when I'm faced with one of these patients after kind of immersing myself, um, you know, in, in those meetings and really getting to know them in, outside of a, you know, healthcare setting. So that's kind of something that I would recommend to people just, you know, look it up and make sure the, the meeting says like open and then, you know, anyone's kind of able to, to attend. You know, that's great point. Um, and I think, I think one of the things that I think is important attitudinally is to shift from a place of hopelessness around the issue to a place of hopeless hopefulness, and um, that's what turns me on about integrated care. Because when I'm in a community of healing that can adopt a uh, a hopeful, positive attitude, and then and that says, you know what, we do have what's necessary to promote healing here in with this patient. Together, we do have you have a, a, a whole different mindset to the obstacles that may come in the course of patient care. So I want to ask you guys this because, again, I want the folks listening out there, whether they're a physician, mental health professional, um, uh, even the other folks you mentioned, peer support, et cetera, et cetera, to kind of leave this podcast with that sense of hopefulness around this issue and this idea that we can do substantial things to impact patient lives in this area. So especially given that most of us work in some clinical capacity of some form, if you think about the things that you have seen, say you can choose a physician, you can choose a mental health professional, or even other any other uh, uh, healthcare team member, what have they have you seen them do? What have you seen them be able to instill as far as health? in their patients struggling with opioid use disorder, what have you seen uh, that they are able to do to be helpful, right? And, you know, I'll start us off by just saying that that I've seen, um, uh, we back in my days in Wisconsin uh, at Access Community Health Centers, we started a uh, an MAT service with an addiction specialist. And this is a family practice doc who just decided this was an area of passion for him and, and uh, became certified in this area or specialized in this area. And what we were able to see was that people who were getting sort of, uh, to Jeffrey's point earlier, getting kicked out of substance abuse treatment, um, were able to come to our primary care clinic and see the addiction medicine specialist receive medication um, that was either aimed at harm reduction or aimed at um, reducing cravings, et cetera. Um, and on that same visit, see a behavioral health professional to talk about the impact on their life, to talk about the development of coping skills, to begin to take a step forward in their understanding of the addiction itself. And I was able to see patients not not get better like within a day, 
But over time, through relapses and recovery, because they were able to come back flexibly to that team and not be sort of kicked out, um, I was able to see patients begin to have hope around their condition and hope around managing that condition over their, over their lifetime. And um, that, that just basic installation of hope is, is huge. And that happened because it was a place that they could come to that understood what they were dealing with and they gave them some tools to deal with it and then didn't kick them out when they didn't get it perfectly. Um, and so it, it, to me, that's an ex- a very specific exemplar of how clinicians can really exercise their skills to be a part of the solution. But I'm just wondering what you guys have seen We have one of our physicians who just does an outstanding job of engaging with the family and addressing the patient in the context of those relationships of people that are closest to them. And I'm thinking of a case that this doctor worked with where the patient was managing an addiction and they were able to engage the family, bring the family in appointments, understand the role of the addiction within the family system and collaborate with our behavioral health providers who at our clinic, because I'm an MFT supervisor, happen to be MFT students as well. And so have this expertise in working with families. And so that collaborative treatment plan, not just between the patient and provider, but involving the family as a central link to that gave, just like you said, it gave hope. It gave hope to the patient and hope to the family and recognition that this isn't a thing that just affects one person, but that the addiction affects the family and the family has an impact on the addiction and just contextualizing it that way made such a difference for them. I I have uh, two superheroes (laughs) that I would want to hold up in terms of this uh, area of work. Um, The first is um, Gabor Mate, M-A-T-E. He's a family physician in Vancouver, British Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, His book is entitled uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. And he just has an extraordinary, powerful way of reminding us about relationship and empathy and abuse and trauma and connection and um, uh, how we carry ourselves into the um, clinical encounter. And, and he actually starts with that, you know, basic decision balance, motivational interviewing question, which is, what is it? What is the source of relief that you receive from the substance uh, use? What is it? In what way does it make you feel better? It's a precious and tender opening of the door to the place of hurt which we so often miss the opportunity to, to investigate in the rumble-tumble rush of you know, healthcare delivery. Um, my, my second um, superhero is uh, no longer alive, Ignacio Martin Barreau, Jesuit priest and uh, uh, clinical psychologist, worked in uh, El Salvador um, for many years, um, tragically murdered in El Salvador. Uh, but Martin Barreau wrote that, um, Uh, psychological issues that stem from social problems cannot be treated with psychotherapy alone. They can only be treated with true social change. And I'm getting emotional about this, but I'm really so 
tired of politicians and others who are sending and continuing to foster the trauma about messages about immigrants and outsiders and um, drug abusers as demons. We need to look at the clinician and the patient and the relationship. We certainly need to look at the family. But, but we have to stop this incredible poisonous tide that is just leading to more and more and more. We cannot keep up. There are not enough of us with beating hearts to do this work. Yeah. So um, education and prevention. Uh, yeah. And yeah. And I, I want to put a pin in in one of the things you said, Jeffrey. That that is also, I think, an important clinical perspective for our folks out there. Um, that is that you're absolutely right. One of the layers that we have really barely even touched related to this is that there are social issues related to this problem in our communities that are way beyond the scope of what a health clinic is going to be able to tackle. Now, that doesn't mean that we throw our hands up, but it does mean that we have to have that perspective. And I am personally bothered as well. And as much as I love the fact that the federal government um, uh, wants to provide resources and should be providing resources towards this issue, I get bothered by the implication that if we throw enough money at this right. issue, that it will go away. And I can't tell you how much that angers me because that is an avoidance of some of the fundamental institutional, structural, societal issues that we are unwilling to face as a community um, in our economic structures, our, our rural centers, um, our impoverished communities, our communities of color, et cetera. Uh, there are large issues there. And so uh, this goes back to that original point that Grace brought up about learned helplessness, right? I think part of the learned helplessness is this sort of unconscious or subconscious understanding that what we're facing with addiction is much bigger than what we are able to solve. And that's true. We must accept that reality. However, a reaction of throwing my hands up, shunning the patient, or, you know, sort of, you know, turfing them elsewhere is not the right reaction. It is a reaction of entering the suffering and then beginning to find hope in the midst of that suffering because of the power of relationship. And I think what we're talking about here is not just the power of a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but all the power of a communal relationship that's formed when you have a truly integrated care team that's interacting with the patient and their family in the context of their community and saying, look, yes, we've got these larger issues here, but we also have the power of relationship and we have the skills that we have as professionals to help facilitate change. So I think that perspective can be very protective um, while we acknowledge what's real about this larger issue. I think all of those things you know, strike at the core, because one of the things that I think about is my moment of vulnerability of feeling extremely helpless uh, while I was in training, sitting with a family, a family member, or a patient who is going through this and not knowing what to do. And I, you know, reflecting back on it, I think I had this expectation that I have to fix this. And that was not a very helpful feeling or a mental state to walk into the room with. 
And it's only in the last few years I've begun to sort of make sense of the the slow work and the hard work of continuous access and openness and vulnerability. And I think there is a tendency to be very surgical and ultra clinical around these issues and wash it and sanitize it and not sort of see the gradients. And I think bringing that back into the clinical conversation. The other thing that I think about, uh, which I think I sort of definitely found a different way to end our conversation today for our uh, on the road reflection, uh, Father Greg Boyle again, I feel like I'm plugging for him from the Homeboy Industries. You know, he sort of talks about we have to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop and that the only healing is in the kinship that we are able to kindle with that. And I hope the conversation that we're having in this podcast today is our community as a community of providers and integrated care researchers and policy folks and clinicians and most importantly, compassionate human beings that we are making a stand with the community that suffers with addiction and that and that the medical community needs to sort of embrace and stand with them so that the demonizing and the gap will will reduce. And so that we can get away from the idea that let's throw money at it so this will go away. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, here's when I talk to students who often are in that situation, Deepu, that you were in, that I was in early in my career as well. I remember many instances like that. Um, you know, is I, I remind them that, hey, in the context of relationship, you have all sorts of ways as a team that you can support your patient. You know, it starts with the the very basic core of what we're all taught in our class. It's uh, in our classes. It's you can listen, right? Uh, how many people listen to folks with substance abuse conditions? Their families will stop listening to them. Their friends will stop listening. Their employers will stop. You can listen. You can implement some of those motivational interviewing strategies to reflect back to them their decision making and the um, the the benefits of their decision making the consequences of their decision making some of the pathways that they use to think about their addiction you can uh, uh, begin to do education just basic education on what's available um, what what kind of treatment they can uh, obtain in other words you can almost always find in almost every consult and certainly I've been in a few consults where there's not much you're going to get done that day, right? But you can almost always find a way to be a supportive, um, uh, uh, helpful, therapeutic part of what's going to help that individual move forward in their life. And it's, it's frankly a little bit clinically lazy when you, when you say, well, there's just absolutely nothing I can do especially in integrated care context where you're not only there helping the patient, but you're also there potentially just helping the sustain the relationship between the physician and the patient where you're sort of bolstering that piece there. I mean, I, 
to rephrase what you're saying a little bit, Naftali, if that's okay, I mean, part of the power of integrated care is we go to where the patients are. And in this case, we're not just talking about physically going to where they are in the exam room, but emotionally and mentally and psychologically going to where they are and meeting. And again, we've referenced it several times, but back to those motivational interviewing principles, rolling with resistance and meeting patients um, with the context that they present. Um, yeah, I think that's just such powerful work that we can do. And I tell my interns and remind myself constantly that sitting with the patient and hearing their story and helping them communicate that to the physician is one of the most powerful things I think we can do as BHCs. Yeah. And, and I also don't want to diminish it. There's, there's another side to this that, you know, our listeners have heard us um, be very, uh, be advocates basically for this group of patients. That's that it, we're we're not trying to say that working with this group of patients is always easy, or mm-hmm. that there are not really difficult components. So one of the pieces that's somewhat different compared to say working with a diabetic, is that folks with addictions will push boundaries because that's a function of the addiction, and so one of the things that we do on integrated care teams is help each other as a sort of a little community is to have good boundaries with a patient as a way of being therapeutic with the patient, helping them have boundaries for themselves and putting boundaries around their addiction and their addictive behavior. And setting those boundaries around things like prescribing pain medications or uh, behavior in a clinic or et cetera, those can be really challenging interpersonally and really tough to deal with and contain. So we're not, you know, sort of sugarcoating any of this by saying, you know, oh, this is super easy work. It's not. Um, But if you understand it in the right context, I think what we're trying to say is we can do so much and so much better than what we do right now for our um, fellow friends and neighbors with addictions than what we're doing right now. I really appreciate uh, something in particular about our conversation today, which is the articulating uh, what is going on inside our heads as uh, clinicians and team members. Like Deepu, you said so beautifully, you know, this this cognition you had early on, like, I got to fix this and I don't know how and I don't know where to begin and how that has shifted in beautiful and gentle ways to something like, whoa, let me be curious about you. Let me listen to you without judging. Let me open my heart to you, and which I can do because I'm in the process of healing myself and I'm part of a team where we nurture one another. And let me uh, then introduce you perhaps to others who can also listen without judgment and offer their hands to help you carry this incredibly um, heavy and and pernicious set of uh, life challenges. Yeah, Yeah, and the other other take-home to Jeffrey to add to that is just... Uh, also off of uh, tying into Deepu and Grace's comments earlier of the slowness of the change and being willing to enter that slow process and being okay with that, um, I think is is a crucial clinical skill to have with this group. Um, and, then, and then to the point of the learned helplessness piece, um, allowing, uh, not allowing yourself to get caught in that web, which is also part of the addiction, right? This idea that um, it is inevitable that I will fail. 
and that this addiction will trap me for the rest of my life is really just extended out to us, right? As we face this, this, the enormity of this issue. If you're able to change that perspective and that stance as a clinician, um, then you're going to be able to sit with the patient. You're going to be able to enter their suffering in that moment, in that day. You're going to be able to stand with them in a very, very different way. And on the other side, you'll also be able to set good, healthy boundaries, and you'll be able to communicate health and what healthful behavior um, uh, looks like in contrast to what the patient might be engaging in the moment. It's a really much, it's a stronger centered position as a clinician, both on the medical side and the behavioral side of things. Right. And Naftali, can we just bookmark that point for another conversation for another day about the velocity of intervention? Because it is slow, but it's also um, unacceptable to be too slow. This is mm-hmm. These are issues of life and death and morbidity and mortality and um, illness and um, loss. And I would say that there's a conversation to be had about where and when and how and with what kind of velocity we turn up the heat, especially in terms of inequities. So so I have the perfect title for that podcast because it's something I've thought about. It's sort of like the the time-space continuum because there is a slowness to really good clinical work that can happen efficiently. Right. I, I think I think that that's just what I found. And primary care is a is a particular place that challenges you to master that Zen quality yeah. of being mm-hmm. able to sit still and cut through in an efficient fashion to where relationship really is efficacious. Um, yeah. So yes, let's bookmark that one as a teaser for a future podcast. I like. All that. right. Go ahead. I think one one of the things that I was also talking about was uh, I think we sort of highlighted this throughout the thing, but I want to sort of spell it out for us is the idea of working in primary care. I heard the word nurture thrown around a whole bunch of times. And I think we also need to think about nurturing who we are as providers and our team members who are providers, right? Like, so the rates of burnout in primary care, the rates of burnout among substance abuse counselors and people who work in this field. And I think one of the points that we talked about was in a team-based environment when we can sort of work with multiple sets of patients and not just one condition one after the other, it also provides a good set of practice uh, to work as a team so that we're not constantly focused on one issue that's not improving, right? And so primary care becomes that open door where we may see someone with substance use at 8.30 and then a diabetic and a kid who just wants to go back to school or and somebody who wants to get a physical or a well woman exam and then see another patient who uh, is coming off of their opioids and, 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 you know, they're meeting us for some kind of MAT or just meeting with the BHC for a quick uh, check on relapse and how they're doing or whatever it may be. Uh, so I wonder if primary care, uh, I don't wonder, I know primary care is the, is the right access point uh, to do this work. Uh, but I just think it, it is the right context because of how it's designed to serve the community. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's another bookmark for us, the nurturing. Um, yeah, that's a big issue uh, on my mind as well. So uh, we are at the end of a podcast again, uh, pushing minutes here. Um, 
We are so excited to have these conversations with you. Again, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at info at cfha.net. Um, let us know what your thoughts are, what your feelings are, et cetera. Uh, to lead us out as usual, uh, Deepu, take us out. All right. This is so relevant to what we've been talking about today. And this is from Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion by uh, Gregory Boyle, who is the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. And here's what he had to say. No daylight to separate us, only kinship. Inching ourselves closer to creating a community of kinship such that God might recognize it. Soon we imagine with God the circle of compassion. Then we imagine no one standing outside of that circle, moving ourselves closer to the margins so that margins themselves will be erased. We stand there with those whose dignity has been denied. We locate ourselves with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. At the edges, we join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. Thank you. Thanks so much, Deepu. And thanks to all of our listeners out there. Uh, stay tuned. We'll see you soon.